0: My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. John J. Donahue III is a Stanford law professor and economist. He's widely known for his research on the death penalty, gun ownership, crime, civil rights, and abortion. And his research on the impact of abortion was popularized by the book Freakonomics. John was a professor at Stanford Law School from 1995 to 2004, then at Yale Law School from 2004 to 2010. He then returned to Stanford Law School in 2010 where he was my torts professor my 1L year. John earned an undergraduate degree from Hamilton College, a law degree from Harvard, and a Ph.D. in economics from Yale. I hope you enjoy learning from John Donahue today because I always do. John, it's great to connect again today. Not only were you my torts professor at law school, you were also my teammate in a bunch of pickup games at Ariaga, And we won a bunch of games together in large part because you are tenacious on the basketball court. So it's great to be able to catch up with you again today.
1: Yeah. Although uh, my memory is that uh, your skill was the big part of those victories, but anyway, great, great to catch up. Nate. Well,
0: John, as you think back on your research and teaching, are there any simple, practical, underappreciated lessons you've learned that you'd most like to pass along to others?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there are a bunch of things that uh, have have come to me over the years. Uh, when I graduated with a PhD in economics uh, uh, and and decided I'd, I'd go into law teaching, my, my orientation was to try to focus on empirical research that that might shed light on good public policy, and uh, and that's what I've been doing ever since. And had had some good success in some areas, but also, uh, you if you do this sort of work, and I think you're thoughtful and reflective, you you also see that there are some some big challenges. So, uh, uh, you know, if I if I look back, one particular project I worked on was was quite intriguing to me. I uh, I was asked by a a great lawyer in Connecticut who I didn't know, but I had known of him for years. And he asked me to uh, do an empirical evaluation of the Connecticut death penalty as part of his challenge uh, in litigation to the Connecticut death penalty. And so that was back in September of 2006. And I asked him, you know, how, how much time is this going to take? Because I was a little busy at the time. At, at that moment, I was a professor at Yale Law School. And he said, well, the report's due in three months. So, you know, it's a it's, uh, relatively short duration. And so I thought I was signing on for three months of hard work. It, it, it ended up being 10 years. So oh, I it was like fighting the, the Trojan War. Uh, but but ultimately, we, we, uh, we ended up with... Uh, Decision by the Connecticut Supreme Court that eliminated the the death penalty in in Connecticut, and so that was a very interesting experience for me, uh, across the board in terms of the empirical work that I did, but also seeing litigation and uh, and legislation because there was some legislation along the way, um, and and also uh, 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 you know just just to. Uh, work with a, a very talented lawyer who was not uh, uh, an empiricist, but see him uh, learn, you know, I would teach him and then he would make the, uh, the arguments uh, as a lawyer in court. Uh, so so m- many interesting lessons from that 10-year project.
0: So as you think back on that, you know, in terms of the death penalty, there's some, you know, theoretical, philosophical arguments for and against the death penalty. But you approach this from an empirical Point of view, and what were the empirics like? What was the most persuasive factor in your mind that uh, led the the state to overturning the death penalty?
1: Yeah, great question. You know, I I have uh, over time had had sort of embraced this idea that two two things I'd like my work to do are reduce suffering in the world, and you know, improve things when we can. And so, for the death penalty, it was an interesting process for me. Because, of course, if there's, a, if there's a deterrent value of the death penalty, then it's a little bit of a trade-off. You know, The death penalty itself imposes suffering on, obviously, the, uh, the person who's executed, but also their family. Uh, but if, if there's a big deterrent value, then that, that cuts against that, uh, that harm. Uh, and so I, I had done some work over a period of a couple of years with uh, a brilliant uh, colleague then at Stanford named Justin Wolfers. And we really spent a couple of years just trying to see if there was any deterrent value from the death penalty in the US and we, we concluded there wasn't. So then it made it an easier decision for me that if, if there wasn't a deterrent value, uh, then, then I thought the death penalty was, was all cost and, and no benefit. And interestingly, in, in 1764, um, a, a, an Italian uh, theorist by the name of Cesare Beccaria had written uh, a paper on the death penalty. It was the first real criminology-oriented uh, paper written in Europe, and he had said that uh, he felt the death penalty was not a deterrent and therefore it could not be a just punishment since it was the uh, you know, mere imposition of, of harm without any offsetting benefit. And so interestingly, I sort of came to that that same conclusion, but it was after spending a few years looking at the empirical evidence on, on deterrence and the death penalty. So then when I was asked to do the, uh, the Connecticut death penalty litigation, uh, it, was a, it was a busy point in time for me, uh, but I thought, well, I've just spent two years looking at the deterrence. And, and so I'd come to this conclusion. It was it was good to get rid of it. So uh, when they asked me to do the study, I, I sort of jumped in. And it was an interesting process because the lawyer said, look, uh, we, we, th- we think the death penalty is, is bad in a number of ways, but we're not empirical researchers. And the uh, Connecticut Supreme Court has instructed us to get an empirical researcher to evaluate the death penalty. So we want you to do the evaluation. And they really didn't uh, give me too much guidance. Uh, They just let me run with it. And uh, I I looked at the the way the system worked and concluded there was a lot of arbitrariness. uh, Depending on where uh, a murder was occurred, there was either no chance that you would get the death penalty because the prosecutor was quite opposed, or if you happened to be in Waterbury, Connecticut, uh, then there was a very good chance because the prosecutor was very uh, zealously attached. Uh, but then there were also uh, uh, racial disparities, which were pretty extreme and, and unexplained. Um, and, and just the general arbitrariness that some relatively uh, uh, less heinous crimes would get the death penalty and some of the most atrocious crimes did not. So I just put the entire case before uh, uh, the, the first in, in the litigation setting, but uh, the, the Connecticut legislature ran with the report and eliminated the death penalty, but only prospectively. So then there was litigation. Would it be constitutional to retain the death penalty? for those on death row when the state had eliminated it prospectively. And at the end of the day, the court said, you know, given all of the problems with uh, uh, the death penalty that were identified in, in this report, uh, they considered it to be unconstitutional at that point, once the legislature had eliminated it prospectively.
0: Well, this is really interesting to me and timely because literally yesterday afternoon, I finished the book, the sun does shine which is about uh, anthony ray hinton who was on death row for 28 years and it was the work of brian stevenson that helped free anthony uh, wrongly convicted they they had you know the only evidence was basically a, a gun that was found at his mom's house the prosecution eventually couldn't even match the bullets to the gun and that was their only evidence and uh what i learned from that book uh was to your point just how arbitrary The death penalty can be many times. And and in the book, it also said that the the evidence shows that about one in 10 of people who have been executed, at least in the death penalty in Alabama, uh, were after the fact, uh, they expected them to have been innocent. So you're looking at, you know, I don't know what rate would be acceptable for many people. It would be zero innocent people ever being executed. But one out of 10 was just shockingly high.
1: Yeah, and and Brian Stevenson is is quite a talent. I saw him uh, a few months ago uh, give a lecture, and he really is almost a mesmerizing speaker. Um, but yeah, that that has been my experience. That uh, sometimes, uh, you know, you just think about uh, one of the verities of life seems to be that, you know, five percent of any any profession seems to be somewhat problematic, and that's true for law professors, doctors, uh, teachers, uh, um, you know, police. And I think it's also true for prosecutors. And so the, for, for that group of the, the less, uh, you know, less talented or, or, or less uh, justice oriented prosecutors, I, th- I think there are dangers of, of these uh, types of misconduct. And, and I, I saw it in Connecticut, there was one guy, who committed a murder on uh, January 3rd, 1988. I remember it because it was my daughter's birthday and uh, he spent 20 years in prison. And I could not believe uh, that the prosecutor got this guy convicted and he he used a a jailhouse snitch who was completely incredible as a witness, not credible as a witness to secure the conviction. And, and so that that really troubled me. And it turned out that that was the prosecutor who was up against me in this challenge to the Connecticut death penalty. And I just saw him up close and I said, this is not a person of good judgment. And yet that that is one of the problems with having the death penalty, that people who are not always of good judgment are making very important decisions on life or death matters. And, and, and I think, you know, everybody should be at least a, a little bit concerned about that, no matter how you feel about the death penalty. Just reflect on um, the cases where people without good judgment are, are making those decisions.
0: Well, in your work, John, aiming to reduce suffering and improve things, you know, what, what an accomplishment to be able to have such an impact on society. Um, but because of your goal to reduce suffering and improve things, you end up, you uh, doing research and um, spending your time on some pretty controversial issues, such as gun control and abortion and civil rights. Uh, as you think about other lessons that you would most like to pass on, are there any in, the, in these other areas that you would like to discuss?
1: Yeah, well, the the, the gun area has been a very interesting one for me. Uh, I, I got into it sort of uh, inadvertently, although I, I should say that um, When I came out of of my graduate program in economics, which was in 1986, so I've been at this for a while. um, The next five years were really quite terrible years in terms of increasing crime in the United States. So while I had been doing a lot of work with uh, the brilliant Nobel Prize winning economist, uh, Jim Heckman, in the area of, of, you know, do the civil rights laws impact uh, Uh, the economic prospects of minorities, uh, I sort of shifted over to crime because I was so alarmed at the increase in crime in the late 1980s. And at the end of that period, uh, uh, Judge Posner, a famous uh, Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals judge and University of Chicago professor, asked me to review a book by John Lott for the first issue of the American Law and Economics Review that Posner had just become the editor of. And, uh, and so that's how I ended up getting interested in the, in the gun question. What, what happens when a state allows citizens to uh, carry uh, guns outside the home? You know, most, most states were quite restrictive um, you know, 30, 40 years ago. In fact, uh, Texas uh, is is quite remarkable in that from 1871 until 2005, um, uh, excuse me, 1995, it it actually prohibited um, uh, the uh, the carrying of guns outside the home at all. Um, huh. So so you were not able to, unless you were hunting, uh, carry a gun outside the home, and um, and and so we have quite a different. Uh, uh, position today. So I just spent uh, quite a bit of time trying to figure out what what the truth was about what those impacts were. And along the way, there were some humbling lessons because uh, John Lott did the first study, came out with a conclusion that uh, he thought that they the laws were actually beneficial. Um, But we we have since learned uh, his study came out originally, I think, in 1997. And we've since learned that um, Many many of the tools of, of econometrics uh, were were much less uh, uh, robust back then than they are today. So we've we've learned that um, you know even even the way that we measured statistical significance was was off in some of these early panel data studies, and and so it's been a good lesson for me. Uh, you know, you do the best you can with the state-of-the-art econometrics, and you have to be super careful if you're going to have any hope of really teasing out the causal relationships, but you always have to maintain a little humility because, uh, as, it's, as has happened over the last 30 years, someone may come along and say, oh, that, that technique is, is really imperfect, and here's a, a better technique. And sometimes the better technique uh, gives you a different answer than the first te- technique. So it turns out to be a lot harder than I originally anticipated when I started doing empirical work uh, to, to actually be sure that you have uh, landed the correct result. And, and I think just yesterday, uh, the New York Times had a big story about red wine and longevity. And, and I remember growing up hearing, uh, you know, red wine would be good for your heart. And, and now they, they just concluded a big study uh, yesterday that, that um, almost all of that effect was generated by the fact that people who drink red wine tend to be more affluent and mm-hmm. higher up in the socioeconomic scale. And it's, it's those features that are the, the basis for their greater longevity. And if anything, the, the wine is reducing <laughs> their longevity. So uh, it, it's a good lesson that in- Empirical uh, truths are are not easily won, uh, but that that's at least the goal of my work is to try to get there.
0: Well, that was one of the very first lessons on this podcast was how to disentangle correlation from causation, and uh, you know that it's 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 really one of the greatest challenges we have as humans, and we have econometrics and different techniques to help us, but we do continue to grow and and learn, and uh, well. John, I want to be sensitive to your time. I could listen to you for hours. Uh, there's so many other things we could talk about. Uh, you worked with Stephen Levitt, and I remember reading about your work in Freakonomics. And and then uh, also, one of my, I have to say, one of my favorite class periods of yours, well, I, I loved your class, but you did something that was fun. And you basically, you said, hey, I want you to debate climate change, and I'm going to leave. And you just left the classroom for about 20 minutes. And we had quite a fun discussion. Now, I don't know if that's because you had something else you had to do at the time. <laughs> but the truth was that we had a really kind of interesting discussion. And and uh, so I, I'm, I'm curious, uh, is that something you still do? And is that a technique that maybe, maybe I need to adopt in my classes?
1: Yeah, you know, I, 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 I remember doing it that time. And part of it was that uh, I just wanted to get a sense of whether uh, being the professor sort of inhibited the free flow of discussion on sort of controversial topics. Uh, and, and so what was your sense? Did, did, it, uh, did it promote uh, a little more freedom and in, piping in up?
0: I mean, I felt like people did share freely. But I also think you did a good job as a professor allowing people to share regardless. So maybe people opened up a little bit more had you not been there. But I'm not sure because, like I said, I, I feel like you had a great culture in your class where people felt free to say what they thought. And you you weren't out to try to make somebody look stupid or just kind of impose your view. You know, I think your perspective of being an empiricist and just trying to approach it from the perspective of, you know, here's what the data says, and we're trying to follow the data.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, good, good, good. Well, it was, it was wonderful to have you in, in the class and I'm so delighted you reached out to me so I could hear how, how well you've done since you left Stanford as well.
0: Well, it's just so great to catch up again. Like I said, I loved learning from you in law school and I loved hearing you talk about this today because, you know, when we're taking torts, you didn't actually spend as much time on the death penalty work, right? Because it wasn't uh, you know, necessarily quite on topic for torts. So it's just great to be able to learn from you today. I could, you know, like I said, I could spend hours just listening to you talk about the work you did on abortion and uh, the relation to crime and uh, work you've done for civil rights. So with that said, I just, again, want to say thank you. And it was so great to be able to chat again.
1: Yeah, it was a real pleasure, Nate. Thanks again.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickels and Dimes. John Donahue is an inspiring professor and teacher. But he has also made an impact on public policy, and I love John's goal of trying to reduce harm and improve things where he can. For example, John's research on the death penalty found that the death penalty was not having a deterrent effect on crime, and it was all too often administered arbitrarily and unfairly. For example, for every eight people executed, one person on death row is exonerated. Given the data John presented and the arguments his team made, the Connecticut Supreme Court abolished the death penalty. John's goal of trying to reduce harm has also led him to conduct research on gun ownership and crime. But rather than focus on the findings of his research, which are many, John discussed the importance of humility. It's harder to tease out causal relationships than John had at first realized, so it's important to maintain some humility when we think we know something. For example, researchers believed for decades that red wine improved people's health, but now it appears that the opposite is true. I could have listened to John for days, as we only scratched the surface of what he's done and the lessons he's learned, but I'm grateful for what he did share strive to reduce harm, improve things where we can, all while remaining humble in our conclusions. It's a simple idea, please take it seriously. Nate Mickle here with three quick requests. First, if you would like a quick summary of these lessons delivered to your inbox, sign up for Nate's Notes at natemickle.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. And finally, if you'd give this podcast a five-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Thanks for your support.